From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. He's never done the show before, but I've had many, com- not many, a couple of conversations with Jonathan Glazer. It's always great talking to him and his new film, an adaptation <laughs> of The Zone of Interest. First of all, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. In your works, they're not genre pieces, but they're about worlds that have genres built around them mm-hmm. and worlds that we have specific emotional responses to. And, and as often as not, we're made aware of how absurd these worlds are because of the intensity surrounding them. Mm-hmm. All these things come into play in looking at, at Martin Amos's zone of interest. But you chose to really, I don't want to say strip it down, but there's a reduction that takes place here that makes it as much about the place mm. as the people in it. Well, it's interesting. That was my first sort of visceral response to, to Auschwitz the first time I went was that any film I was going to make here, and I didn't at the time know what it would be, I'd read the Martin Amos book by that point, and I I was aware, you know, I st- I'd started to sort of think about move st- moving away from the narrative of the book towards the real people, real people responsible for the for those uh, in charge of those crimes at Auschwitz, so uh, that he based his his characters on. So I sort of knew that I was headed, I was going to get on my own road with it. You know, I was um, moving away from the book for sure. But I didn't really understand precisely what I was aiming for. I visited the house, which was um, the Rudolf Hoss and his family lived in a house, which it was known as the Hoss Villa, and it was uh, right on the edge of the camp. So in other words, he wanted to live as close to his work as he could, which meant that he was living uh, with his family, bringing up his five children with his wife and the, the prisoners and, and lo- or local uh, staff that uh, serviced them in a house that was... 50, 60 meters from the camp, from his office in the camp. And the garden wall on the one side, their garden, this sort of paradise garden that she had built, basically it was the same wall that abutted the camp. So, so on one side of the wall was the concentration camp where there was this machinery of death kind of perpetually un- underway. And on the other side was this garden. And there was something obviously so jaw-dropping about that proximity that it felt like that was somehow the film was going to be about that about that wall being the sort of almost a manifestation of what we choose not to see. Is that what precipitated that first scene, that first image that it could almost be from in America a Norman Rockwell painting of, of a family life in dappled sunlight and we're aware of the greens mm. and, and the way the, the bathing suits fit, period. It's a period fit. They're not refit to make them look modern at all. No, not there, so. And yeah. there's there's something wistful about that mm. almost. And then, as you said, jaw-dropping. Yeah. They lived to their heart's content. They had their, they they had the paradise that they had dreamt that they would have one day. I just wanted to show that. I wanted to show them, like you said, like a normal Morocco, I remember, or like an August Renoir or something, like some French Impressionist painting. You know, just very just bucolic, romantic, sentimental, a saccharine, actually, quite sickly in its in its sort of uh, cliched uh, beauty. Yeah, the saturation of the blue in the sky mm. is the first thing I was struck by, and that, that felt almost painted. Mm. Talk about the way you shot that and the cameras that you use. So we shot all of the film, in fact, using... I had 10 cameras, and the reason I had 10 cameras was because some of the scenes are shot with fewer, but most are shot with, you know, the 10 cameras that I that I had. 
they were Sony Venice cameras. They were small cameras, so they I did they they weren't um, unwieldy big cameras that required a lot of technology around them. They're very small, and they and I use Leica lenses, which are very sharp lenses. And really, everything about the photography was to serve this idea that we were witnessing something in the present tense. So even though it was sort of recreating something that was happened in 1943, we wanted the window into it to feel absolutely modern. That's a visual anachronism we get because all those scenes and those places that are so old mm. and those, again, those old bathing suits being shot in that way with that kind of clarity. Mm. Exactly that. It was, But it was also Auschwitz, at the, you know, the, the, the house at the time was four years old. You know, the, the camps were not much older at all. They were Polish barracks before they were then taken over by the Germans and turned into a death camp and rebuilt. So everything was pretty new. I mean, at the time, this was a frontier we were looking at. This was the new the new frontier they were these they saw themselves as pioneers so they were traveling east in the way that in that like in the american uh, in american history go west you know manifest destiny and so on there was a similar thing i think they were they looked actually at the american dream as they understood it to be as a, as a model for what they were trying to achieve not only that but the american jim crow they used to engineer that place which i mentioned to you before we got started i bet as well and what's so astonishing about it is, is the extent to which everything is engineered to sort of strip a layer of humanity away, layer by layer, mm-hmm. as a sequence where your incredible uh, female actor is just shopping. Mm-hmm. And when you go to the camps now, you can see how people are separated from their belongings mm-hmm. in a way that sort of told who and what they were, mm-hmm. but also immediately made them chattel mm-hmm. and discard it. Mm-hmm. That was brought to mind for me, watching her shop through the this, the discards mm-hmm. that the prisoners had left. They had everything they wanted. They took everything they wanted. I don't think they saw anything wrong in what they were doing. You know, these people were not born mass murderers. You know, they sort of step by step become that. And really, you know, going back to the um, the book and, and the primary text that Martin Amos would have gone to himself to write those book, that book from, showed the primary text stuff, the sort, the real people, the, the, the SS, the, the private lives of these people who, of course, they had to live somewhere. They had a family they were bringing up. They had, you know, birthday parties and all the rest of it. I became so fascinated by that, by the banality of those normal lives, actually. And in through our research, you really see the thing that's most striking is how grotesquely ordinary they were and how familiar they were. So they weren't often these sorts of films show the perpetrators as monsters, literally. They're not... And they end up sort of almost being fictional, you know, um, mythological. These sort of, like it was an anomaly that this thing happened, like that they almost weren't human beings. Well, of course they were human beings. I mean, that's the that's the, the hardest thing to confront is that they were human beings. The hardest thing to recognize is that they were human beings as we are. So in other words, all too human, in fact, in the sense that they were driven by similar desires. They're very familiar desires, you know, status, property, nice school, somewhere nice to live, comfort. nice garden, comfort, comfort, all of those things. Those bourgeois dreams were precisely what they were chasing. It's so much to talk to my guest, Jonathan Glazer's new film is The Zone of Interest. You can also see the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. But as you were talking, I was just thinking about your films, uh, Birth or Under the Skin or, or Sexy Beast, have all been about something extraordinary being visited into the mundane and how that transforms that. This is a kind of Neplu Ultra version of that, but what attracts you to that kind of thing? I don't know. I really don't. 
the way you articulated it there, I, I thought, oh, that makes great sense. Yeah, you, I think you're right. You're on something there. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't, I don't think of it from on those terms. I don't think of it strategically. You know, it's like you, you or thematically, I don't think about, okay, what themes am I interested in? What are the themes I, I'm interested in that I might keep making, keep churning over? You know, what are these themes that I'm interested in? It's that, for me, project starts when I feel completely compelled to, to make something. And I really don't know what that's going to be until I'm in it. It's almost something that insists itself on me. And so I'm, I'm not strategic about what I choose to do. It's like it chooses me. It takes you a while to make movies. And obviously it takes some time for you to find a piece of material that you land on in a way that's provocative to you and substantial to you. But also I feel like each of these things presents an enormous visual, enormous visual challenge for you. Each one a separate kind of challenge. Yeah. And at some point, things seem kind of idyllic in all these movies. I was mm. thinking about those seascapes and sexy beasts. And then all these films have some moment where there's a moment of profound physical beauty, often at the very beginning. Mm. You wanted to show us how absurd the world is in yeah. your way from time to time. I think absurdity is a good place to work. You know, There's a lot of... Um Things that are absurd make somehow more sense than things that aren't, somehow, for me anyway. Yeah? Yeah, an abstraction. But for me, my process is, it's, it is a feeling. I do definitely have a, I have a very strong feeling for something that, that is, that, and I can feel it, and then I can see it. But I have to then start to build something that will almost be the scaffolding for that feeling, like to support it so that... So the image is almost the scaffolding for the feeling. But what I'm actually doing, I think what, what I'm interested in is not visible. You know, the, the subconscious uh, experience of watching a film like, or rather the experience of watching a film like The Zone of Interest, the connection is, um, is, is subconscious. I'm not doing a story for, I'm not trying to just, I'm not weaving a tale. As you say, I'm sort of trying to enter a, a, an atmosphere, enter a, enter a place, a liminal place. You know, it requires the viewer to complete. That, that experience for themselves it, I can't I can't do all of that all I can do is try and create the space for those for those feelings and those thoughts but yeah I'm trying to make a space for that to be possible there's often a jaundiced eye turned towards visual formality mm -hmm. in your work does that seem like an apt description to you yeah I would say so yeah because this the formality of something is how you hold these these feelings and these ideas so the form has to be in harmony with those ideas somehow. You know, it has to be form, the form and the content have to be the same thing. I'm looking for, for a unity of all of those, of all the ingredients, you know, so that it's all one thing. That's across the sound, the music, the visual, the color, the every every aspect of a, of a film. It's, it's using the screen as color rather than as image, you know, or rather not a non-figurative image, but, but pure color like in this film, which seemed to me to be the best expression of what I was trying to say or feel or, or the feelings I was trying to show on the screen were, um, were sometimes best uh, expressed using simple flat color. Um, so, you don't, so I don't start with those ideas. You know, they come from just, just turning the soil again and again and again on the material that I've shot and gathered and, you know, just until it sort of feels like it should. And then I, and then I've done, and then I walk away and I never look at it again. Well, we're talking about tone and formality with my guest, Jonathan Glazer. His new film... It's a bit abstract. Uh, not entirely. His new film is The Zone of Interest. It's the treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us.
We're talking about the substance yeah. of film with my guest, Jonathan Glazer. It's the treatment. You can also hear at kcow.com slash treatment. Jonathan's new film is a zone of interest, but of course we know Sexy Beast or Under the Skin or Birth, which is one of my favorites, by the way. Uh, you work with an incredible cinematographer on that, Harris Savita. Sure did, yeah. And what Harris was so good at is it's finding a pure image that does what you do, that both comment on a formality and offers us something formal at the same time. So we realize, we may not be conscious of it, but we're being moved by two different visual, two different visual powers simultaneously. And what you do in that, starting with it being such an evocative title, but also the way the silence is mm. between the, that boy and the woman, and the power of silence so often in the work, mm. And often in those kind of terms between a woman and a child. Mm. And what, in formal terms, because that's supposed to relax us mm. and make us think about something sentimental. Mm. And you're pushing against that sentimentality in those images so often, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I like to... I'm trying to get deeper with everything I do, you know. Whatever the thing I choose to do is, I'm, trying to, I'm absolutely trying to get to the absolute depths of it the core you know the the essence of it and and when i when i feel like i've got a handle of the essence of it then i can start to construct the thing you know but i've got to come at it from inside so i've got to i've got to investigate it until i understand the absolute essence of something and then that'll tell me how i should shoot it we can use the case of the zone of interest does that eventually come to you knowing where you want to start visually? I mean, does that come to you fairly early on? Or is that once you have to get your hands really in the soils to, to figure that out? It, it is, because in the zone of interest, actually, I day after day, I would think, I can't do this. I mean, even as I'm writing and I'm thinking and I'm trying to form this thing, I'm also thinking, there's no way I'm going to be able to shoot this. I can't put a camera on this. It's too... It empowers them. You know, cinema, the psychology of cinema, the interiority of cinema, you know, what it can give us. Just by putting the cam training a camera on the subject in a certain way, you're giving them power. Uh, exactly that. And then you're making decisions. Is that nice light behind her? Would she, look, would she look better if I backed her? Would she look better on a slightly differently positioned lens and, um, and a, reflecting, a reflecting board here that might give it, you know, to do that with these characters, with these portraits, that are, you know, these people that I'm telling this particular film about, felt so wrong i couldn't make this thing conventionally i just couldn't do it so so i'm pushing forward with my ideas and writing and everything but at the same time i'm thinking i there is no way i'm going to film this maybe I do this as a play or a piece of music or i'm not even wedded yet to the fact that something's a film and while i'm making it i'm just trying to see what it is that's in front of me so you know with this it was like um it had to be a kind of uh lesser story i think than a than an experience and a feeling. But I would say all your films are kind of that. They're all more experiences and feelings than they are, strictly speaking, narrative. We can come back and sort of pick apart where the narrative has taken us. And so much is about chronology for you. Mm. I mean, there's a logical sort of place to join these people. Yeah. And we have the feeling that life has gone on before we, we come in. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like we're catching a song mm. in the second verse rather than the first verse mm -hmm. or the second stanza mm -hmm. or the second movement. Mm -hmm. um, that That's the feeling I we get watching all of your movies mm. is that we're, we're interrupting something. It's ongoing. Yeah, it's ongoing. Oh, I'm pleased you say that. Well, I feel like it's, it's what you want us to do because it's this way of sort of A, lulling us into a sort of sense of, oh, he trusts us, mm. and B, wait, what is it I think I'm seeing mm. that I'm not seeing? Mm -hmm. 
So you're, you're basically conflating and playing with expectation mm. from the very opening. That's why I wonder if in this case, you've got to make a stand and a statement about what you want us to know and not know about something we think we know. I'm coming at it from a belief in the belief that people who are most likely going to go and see this film, they've seen the films of what's going on behind the wall in this film. They know they've, they've got those images, whether they've seen the films or the archive, uh, documentary, photographs, they've, they know what those, they, those are, those images are seared into our minds. And so I use sound here to evoke them for people, because I know that the images that are in your head that are going on over that wall come from you. So I'm not, I wasn't ever interested in reenacting something here at all. I wanted... No, but you also chose in so many films about World War II and about the Nazis, you don't see sunlight. Mm. In so many, mm. there's gray skies. And there's, there's something that tells us that something's wrong here. When I first visited Auschwitz, I visited Auschwitz in July, and it was a beautiful summer. And the trees were glorious, you know, and the, the, the whole landscape is beautiful and verdant and rich. But you feel none of it. So my experience of that was like, here's this beauty that is almost like it's through glass. It's like you can't smell it. It's like there's no, there's no scent in the air. I mean, it, there is. Um, there must be. It's not, nothing supernatural has taken place there. But my, your knowledge of what happened there and the weight of it literally affects you sensorily. Like you are, for, it did me. Do you know what I mean? Like I wasn't able to smell the air. I couldn't, I couldn't smell. I'm walking past fields of, you know, wild flowers or whatever, I could smell nothing. You know, the trees are absolutely magnificent to look at, and you know, in the wind, in the breeze, you know, the tops moving, the dapple of light, all of that's going on. But I, I, I felt no beauty from it. It was a really, it's really strange. So, so what I mean about working from feelings, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, start like there. So then it was always, I've got to shoot, if I, when we shoot this, it's got to be at this time of year. It has to be in summer. It has to be off-putting in its beauty. It has to be, the beauty itself has to be alarming. It's the truth. We're talking about the power of expectation yeah. with our guest, Jonathan Glazer, whose new film writer-director is the adaptation of The Zone of Interest. You can also see the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. But as you're talking about this, you take it from abstraction to a kind of reality by the casting of it. Mm. What is it you say to the actors when you're meeting them? Well, on this film, they... You know, it's quite hard to say to someone you're going to be playing the commandant of Auschwitz and you're going to be playing his wife and you're going to be playing his children. You know, it's, who would want to do that? Exactly. Um, then their questions, of course, are well, how are you going to do this? Like, what's in your head? What's in your heart? What, why are you making this film? Because them, those films are made, there's a lot of them made uh, about the Nazis and about that period of history and with varying degrees of success, of course. And so I think Sandra particularly was... She she was aware of stuff I'd done before, so she 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 had the call with me, but she was quite rightly kind of challenging me on my intent. Did you know you wanted her by that point? Oh, hundred percent. Okay, there was no one else. Really? Yeah. I mean, I um, we we had her and Christian right from the beginning, and um, the doubts she had were the same doubts I had. So I think she was she was uh, she was reassured by my doubt in the in the project. Like she she understood what I was going for. They both did. But they saw themselves as sort of existing in this arena that we were building for them. It wasn't like, tell me about the wife of the Commandant of Auschwitz. Let me know everything about her. Like, let me try and understand her psychology. Let me try and, what did she do? Where did she go to school? All that stuff. We didn't have those, those conversations were not interesting. And they, they might have lasted a few minutes of months of conversation because 
you're actually getting to something else or what you're trying to, what you're asking them to portray is something else, which is take the fact that they're Nazis out of the life. equation. You're the wife of this man. He's an important man. You've got a lovely house that you built. You've got five young children. You've got all the things that surround you that you depend on, rely on, enjoy. And there's a terrible piece of news one day is that he gets asked to transfer to another job and you don't want to go. Why don't you want to go? Because you're in the perfect place. You want to live here and you want to die here. This is it. You've found your paradise. This is everything you've ever worked for. So you're not going to go with him. He's going to go. You're going to have a bit of conflict with him because he's a military man and he expects you and his, his, your children to come with. And it's also that's about not asking questions. You're a military man. You go where you're posted. You go where you're posted. So she defied that. So all of that I could have just described to you could be like a Douglas Sirk. You know, it, it's so... It's like 50s America or something. But the detail here is the fact that he happens to be the commandant of Auschwitz. So it's almost like I was telling, I was trying to tell the film in that order. So the sort of the experience of the film, you see a family and you see you're in their house and you meet them and you believe that they are who they're portraying. But you haven't seen the horrors of what he gets up to when he goes through that garden gate and goes into the camps every day. You hear it, but you don't see it. And you're left with her, and you're left with her running a house. You know, so the perspective is a really interesting one. It was very interesting to them to be, to let themselves just exist in the spaces we were building for them, rather than feel like they were acting in a movie. What's so fascinating about it, too, and what you've done with it, and, and taking away, and, and, and by reducing the book and taking away a lot of the things that, as we were saying, some people could, I said to you before we got started, could look up bonds being glib, mm. and a way to sort of like, have a laugh at the expense of what's going on at the center of the story by making it so much about characters for who, for the most part, are living, subsisting on the fruits of the poison tree. Mm-hmm. It becomes moment by moment more and more terrifying as we realize that we're seeing just that side of it because it's forcing us to ask questions constantly, which is what we should be doing when we watch the news. I find myself thinking this about this movie in a lot of ways every week since I've seen it, mm. because it's, it does this thing that we should be doing every time we get a, a new piece of information. Uh, we should be examining its provenance. And is that something that was always for you subtext here? Completely. More than subtext. Yeah, it's, uh, it's for us to be alert to the worst to who we are, to be aware that... Uh, you know, step by step, these things happen in, in, in life, in the world. I mean, from, from normal people, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so living at number 26 in the suburb, suburban street, these are the people who become criminals very quickly. These are the people. It's not just a, you know, coach loads of, bus loads of psychopaths who commit these atrocities. It, it's enabled by entire, by entire society. And bit by bit, step by step, these um, normal human beings disassociate bit by bit, step by step, from and begin to other through prejudice, through influence, through malign influence rather, they begin to other, you know, other human beings. And then step by step, they become less human than themselves. Now they don't have any legal protection. Now they don't have any rights. Now they're they're not even, they're not human anymore to me. They're, they're further and further away from what I what I enjoy in society and therefore they're lesser than me terrifying thing is that that's that's always in the world and it's you know it's it the film is about it's about that it's about us it's not about these nazis it's about us it's asking us to examine the root of everything we see and i can't think of a movie that's done that in a way that wasn't broadcasting it constantly but makes it let's say part of the text but it's not a spoken text Mm -hmm. 
it feels like now more than ever it's a time for this kind of story. Yeah. Well, tragically, yes, it is. It wouldn't be nice if there was no relevance to this at all and nobody went to see it and there was no need to see it. You know, that would be a dream. <laughs> um, but it's but it but it is. My dad said to me, you know, when I uh, first told him I was going to take this on, you know, he said he used these words, "let it rot." He said to me, like in other words, "what are you doing that for? Why bring that up again?" You know, if only we could. If only it was deceased in order to rot. You know, it isn't. It's uh, it's flourishing in the world, and it's uh, we have to fight it. And in political campaigns in this country, is flourishing. Yeah. But the other thing, the other side of the coin is, is our, which I completely believe, is our capacity for goodness and our capacity for, for the opposite of these, uh, this state of mind. And, and in the film, actually, there's a, even though the film is full of this, the darkness of these characters who have disassociated so severely that, that they don't hear the horrors that we do, there's a character in there who I've shot in thermal vision who's, who's a, a young, who represents a young Polish girl sort of uh, when she was 13, 14 years old. And she lived locally. She not, you know, not, she wasn't Jewish. She was just a local Polish girl who was allowed to remain. Her and her family remained in the house, a couple of miles from from Auschwitz, because her grandfather was quite an important guy at the coal mine. And of course, the Nazis had requisitioned the coal mine in order to be able to, you know, use that. So he remained, and then his family remained. Anyway, she's fourteen years old, and she's she belongs to a resistance movement called the AK, which is a Polish underground resistance movement. Um, who were running documents in and out, trying to, you know, get information in and out and so on. But she, being so young, she was doing some of that, but she also just had this impulse to leave food where she could at these construction sites at night when the prisoners had gone back to the camps. She would leave food for them wherever she could, you know, apples, pears, you know, whatever she could find. And we see her in the film do this. And this, this girl was based on a woman I met called Alexandra, who still lives in that same house. Um, she was born in it and she died in it wow. at the age of 90-something. She told us her story about three weeks before. Sadly, she passed away. But she was the reason why I carried on with this project. Because in those darkest times, when, you, when you're just looking at darkness, you're just seeing the horrors of you know, all of this terrible world of uh, what happened in that, in that region. And I'm spending time researching the people responsible for those atrocities. You know, it's, you're, you're so far away from... You're so far away from our other, our other capacity, goodness, you know, holiness almost. And that, that I'm, I saw it in her, and it was literally like meeting an angel. And, and rendering her that way, she becomes spectral. She becomes Absolutely. something bigger than, than the, the sort of flesh-tone things we're seeing exactly. in, in, in the rest of the film. And She's I, an apparition. She is. And I met her, it's interesting, I met her sitting on a sofa in this house, and she was sitting there, 90-year-old woman, and I was sitting where I am, she was sitting where you were, and there was a window behind her. And she was completely silhouetted because the sun was coming in and she was just a shape. So I didn't even see her face when she was talking. And there was something again in that, that what she was saying about what she did as a 14 year old girl, not with any, she wasn't sort of trying to sort of state her claim for being a good human being or anything. She was just saying that's what, she just happened to do that. She just, she did what she could do. And it was the, the humility, the sort of the beautiful kind of modesty of the woman and the, you know, living in this apartment, a 90 year old woman, with nothing, you know, but very poor, you know, impoverished. And, but the riches that came from her, you know, the, the beauty that came from this woman, I couldn't even see her face. It was just the sound of this. It was so beautiful. And I, and I, and I just thought, now I can make the film. And, and I needed to portray her in the film, which is who the, the young girl in the film portrays her at that age, so at the age of 14 when she did that stuff. So you've got to find the other side. You know, it's, uh, it's not all doom and gloom. 
my guest, who I'm glad finally came here to do this show. Uh, been a fan of his for way too long. Jonathan Glazer, his new film is writer director, is the adaptation of The Zone of Interest. Jonathan, thanks so much for being here. Elvis, thank you. He's given us a sexy beast and offered us birth. Writer-director Jonathan Glazer's newest film is the adaptation of The Zone of Interest, up for five Oscars, including Best Picture and Director. Interviews past and some about the future at the archive, kcrw.com slash the treatment. Stick with us here in the present where there's more to come. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. We have here with us for his first time, which is weird because I realized I met him at, at Sundance the first time I was there, Eugene Hernandez, who is the, how best to describe your role at the Sundance Film Festival, Eugene? Hi, Elvis. I'm the director of the Sundance Film Festival and also the head of public programs at the Sundance Institute. We, of course, know Eugene as one of the founders of IndieWire and as a longtime part of the New York Film Festival, where he was kind enough to have booked a little film that I had something to do with. I, I guess I would ask you, since the first time you were at Sundance to being invited to be a part of the festival and, and the Institute itself, what do you feel like has changed? The world continues to evolve. And more specifically, the independent film community that we come from, and you and I met at Sundance many years ago, I won't put a number on it right now. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot in taking this new role, and I joined the Sundance Institute uh, back in November of 22, and immediately a year ago after the completion of the 23 Festival, dove in on figuring out the answer to exactly that question you just asked, which is how do we continue to evolve this festival entering its 40th edition? So we've just celebrated the 40th edition of the festival. How do we continue to evolve this festival in response and reaction to not only how artists are evolving, but also audiences and not to mention our industry and film critics and curators? No, because you are someone who has served all those functions and and also somebody who reported on all of this and saw when you guys helped to found IndieWire that independent film was becoming the, the ruler by which the mainstream industry measured itself. And and now those lines have been, to torture a metaphor, so blurred. And what we think was being independent film and what thing that Sundance really ascended by its association with that world and and the kinds of companies that existed when you and I met, and there were so many of them. And that first time I was at Park City, I had no idea how many 
sort of tiny offshoot festivals they were. And all those have disappeared now because the definition of what independent film was has changed so much. I guess I would even ask you what independent film even means anymore. I hosted a conversation during the festival with Rick Linklater, with Christine Vachon, with uh, Miguel Arteta. And we were discussing exactly that question of what independence means. And each person had a different answer. For me, I think that when I think about the definition of independence, I think about something that is kind of a through line for Sundance. And I say this as as a newbie, only having worked at Sundance for a year, but someone who started attending the festival 30 plus years ago, that focus, that emphasis, and that celebration of a spirit of freedom, of expression, of singularity, kind of a, the, the opportunity to present a singular uh, voice and perspective that might be, if not at odds with an industry, it might be just sort of an outlier to that industry. And And what I take from that and what connected with me very early on, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s when I was still at UCLA, I was programming films at UCLA, was I think exactly that that spirit that Mr. Redford and and Michelle Satter kind of established from the get-go. And I thought that that Rick Linklater said it well in our conversation at the festival last week. And he employed that infamous uh, quote about pornography, the, you know, I know it when I see it. The people you're talking to, for the most part, all consider themselves to be independents. They all operate in a way that doesn't demand the kind of approbation of, of, of the mainstream or studios. And they are these exemplars who are keeping that spirit alive, aren't they? You can work within a funded structure of the entertainment industry. Some, some might still call it Hollywood, but I think it's, it's broader and bigger than that. And I think you can work within that structure and still maintain a singular independent voice. I saw that in your work with Netflix on Is That Black Enough For You? Your film maintained your singular perspective and voice. It's what drew it's what drew us to invite the film to the New York Film Festival when I was there. But you mentioned Chris Nolan. Uh, you know, we can mention Greta Gerwig and and talk about that distinctive voice that still shines through despite all of the changes and the way that our industry and community have evolved when an artist has something specific they want to share or say or express and they find the support of whether it's uh you know companies within a certain structure or completely working outside of it or somewhere in between a collaboration between both that to me is a really interesting space to inhabit and i think what we see right now to put a, a finer point on it, I think it is we see in our entertainment culture and in our broader culture and entertainment business and in, in the broader ecosystem, those voices, many of whom came through Sundance and the labs or Sundance and the festival, having that, that tremendous impact. I mean, just look at the best picture winners 
for just the last few years. And you see filmmakers who came up through or connected to either the Sundance Institute specifically and its labs or the festival in particular. The Daniels, you know, got their start at the labs. Chloe Zhao, you know, the year before winning Best Picture, coming through the labs, you know, Coda premiering at the festival, uh, Sean Heater's film. So there remains a space within our broader entertainment ecosystem and broader culture for celebrating and supporting these individual voices that we're talking about, some of which we still kind of call independent, but maybe the term is, is, is different. My guest who has been embarrassing me by mentioning the name of the film I made is Eugene Hernandez. He is celebrating his first year as the director of the Sundance Film Festival, and we're celebrating him on The Treatment, which you can also hear at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. What's happened in the past few years, especially with the pandemic, you certainly saw this affect your work at the uh, Film Society Lincoln Center, is it changed the way we interact with the theatrical phenomenon and so much of what Sundance was, because I haven't been since 2020. For a lot of people, the idea of going back when the festival made so much of its programming available on online, because Sundance had become such a brand, and that brand was defined by making it, as you were saying, singular, and this place you could only see something at that festival. With those boundaries being erased, how do you define it moving forward, Eugene? One of the things, Elvis, that, that I really tried to dig into in the past year, and that work started exactly a year ago when the 2023 festival ended, and I really dug into the work of building the 24 festival, the one that's just completed. One of the things that I spent a lot of time talking with the team about, and also out in the world talking with artists and industry about was how to redesign even the experience of Sundance 2023, knowing that there was no looking back at 2019 and 2020. So in trying to redesign this year's festival, the one that just ended, we made some adjustments. Uh, we moved that digital component that, that you mentioned to the latter half of the festival. And I want to dig in on this because it was a fundamental adjustment to preserve and present in the first half of the festival, starting at noon on that very first day of Sundance this year, the in-person experience. So we assured and guaranteed and invited every single film that we invited, selected from 17,000 submissions more than ever in the history of the festival, 91 features and 53 shorts, to give each of those films the opportunity for a premiere, a second screening, and a press and industry screening, all in the first six days of the festival. So by Tuesday, each film had what I've been calling those first uh, first impression. First impressions in, are so important in our world, and certainly to the industry and to the press and to the curators and to the audiences who are there. They were essential to give that film a leg up and a launch and a start. And then in the second half of the festival, starting Thursday, having a, a limited window of a digital screening opportunity, a finite number of streams. This is not Netflix. This is a finite number of streams available for just a few days so that people outside of the industry, outside of Park City, could have a, a taste, a sampling of what's to come for the new year. 
what's happening so much in the world is that the idea of transporting narrative goes with us everywhere now. And one of the things that I think probably you and I both prized about Sundance is being able to see those movies in the theater for the first time. And and that excitement of knowing that we were seeing something that only a handful of people had seen before us. I think people feel clearly differently about the idea of the theatrical experience. I'm wondering if you're feeling it's incumbent on the festival to try to bring some of that magic back. Because I even wonder now, and you've seen this probably talking to the filmmakers, if filmmakers even feel the same about theatrical windows or if it's all just part of a way to get things out now. You know, I come from a kid who grew up in the 70s and 80s in Indio, California, watching movies you know, on weekends with my friends and my family. And so that, that fundamental aspect of not just like entertainment, but like of that fundamental aspect of community, of congregating, of coming together, of like how you navigate the world was just sort of grounded in, in that theatrical experience as so fundamental to like everyday life. I understand that that's evolving. I see how that's changing. And I worked at Lincoln Center for a dozen years where we ran, you know, three movie theaters and a dozen film festivals and prioritized the theatrical experience. One of my last screenings at the festival, I was up at the Sundance Resort, which is the place that is the home for 40 plus years of all the artist programs that Michelle Satter runs. And it's the place that Mr. Redford built to support artists. And we had a screening of a film from this year's festival called Didi by uh, a young filmmaker that has been nurtured by Sundance by the name of Sean Wong. And your listeners are going to hear and see more about this film if they haven't already in the coming year. It's about to announce an acquisition deal. It won two awards at the festival. Sean was nominated for an Academy Award for his short film this year. Watching Sean, this young filmmaker, engage with that audience in that screening room at the Sundance Resort on a cold night gives me hope because not only did he speak about the importance of that opportunity to show his film in front of a group of people and then stand there and have a conversation with them about it, about why he made it, his inspirations, and what he hopes for his film and for his own career. Uh, is something you can't get in the same way when folks will inevitably watch that movie at home or on the go, as you say, whether that's on a device or in any other number of ways. The opportunity to reach a wider audience is there with digital, but the opportunity to connect with an audience remains unique to the theatrical experience, the depth at which you can connect with an audience through that theatrical experience and that communal experience. We've been talking about this ideal of getting films out and getting them in the theater so they can be enjoyed by communities and in the places they were meant to be seen in. The success of the festival, both in critical terms and in commercial terms, must have been pleasing to you. But, I mean, I know you're somebody who likes films that can also push people in ways that aren't exactly right for commercial consideration. We want to continue that idea of Sundance as being a place for those kinds of films too, don't we? Yeah, we do. And to your point or to your question about the industry response, we can't predict those things from year to year. You know, the, the cyclical nature of our industry, the evolution of our industry. But the industry is a really important component 
of, I think, what makes Sundance an interesting place. And when I say industry, I'm also speaking about the broader film community. So that's that's buyers, that's critics and journalists, that's curators. It seems like we're seeing a bumper crop this year in the number of films that are finding homes. There will be plenty of films that will struggle to find a home and will try to carve out an alternate path. So I'm respectful of and mindful of the fact that some films were acquired immediately. Steven Soderbergh makes a, makes a ghost movie from the perspective of a ghost, and it finds a home very quickly. Jesse Eisenberg makes A Real Pain, a film that's very personal to him, and it finds a home very quickly after he spent all night meeting with all the various distributors who wanted to make an offer and went with Searchlight. But there's plenty of films that will struggle to find an audience or will take an alternative path. But I think that the industry is an important connector and a conduit to an audience uh, and can accelerate the path for a film to find an audience. And some films might take a little bit longer. Some films might find an alternative path through the art house theater networks or through other festivals. Think about how many of the films that played at Sundance this past festival will continue on their journey to other festivals, whether in this country or around the world, and will hopefully find a path and a conduit or a connection to an audience in alternative way. So I think we're going to see both coming out of this year's festival. We'll continue to see films getting acquired. I know a bunch of them that are closing deals in the coming days. And other films will take a slower path, but they're still going to find their audience. Don't want to say it's a great way to, to go out, but we're out of time. So we'll have to go out there and ask you to come back and do this again next year. If you, before the festival, if you would mind, Eugene. Anytime, Elvis, I'm here for you. And for KCRW, you guys travel with me wherever I go in the world. So proof positive that somebody actually listens to the show. My guest is Eugene Hernandez, <laughs> the director of the Sundance Film Festival and plays a big role in shaping the festival's, I guess, sort of stature and, and, and impact on the filmmaking community and the world at large. And I can't thank you enough for doing this. Elvis, thank you. Nice chatting with you. Congratulations and thanks to New Sundance Film Festival director Eugene Hernandez. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. She wants a tea and a toe. She hasn't got none yet. She just flew in from the cold. But she loves Broadway Bear. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. This is the treat. He rose to prominence as an editor. Then Sam Pollard turned his sensibilities to directing and has created an impressive stream of documentaries, such as Max Roach, The Drum Also Waltzes. So his treat offers further definition of Sam's sensibility. I'm Sam Pollard, and this is the treat. Nineteen sixty-seven, sixty-eight. I used to have a buddy of mine named Glenn Laurie, who was a drummer, and uh, I would go to his house, and I would listen to him playing all these records with Art Blakey and Horace Silver and Clifford Brown and Lou Donaldson, and it was jazz records, and I didn't hear them. I mean, I had grown up listening to the Temptations and Four Tops and Gladys Knight and the Pips. And I didn't hear this jazz music. I couldn't understand why he was so excited, you know, so engaged with listening to these instrumentals. 
three months after sort of going to his house every other day, listening to these jazz musicians, besides Horace and Art Blakey, but also Chico Hamilton and Thelonious Monk. One day, he put on one of these records, and all of a sudden, my brain opened up. I could hear the improvisation. I could understand the organized sort of creation of these instrumentals, be it a saxophonist, be it a trumpet player, be it a pianist, be it a drummer. to opening this wide door for me where I went to the library. The Museum of Modern Art had across the street was a library where you could listen to records. And every other day, or like two or three days a week, I'd go down to the library across the street from MoMA and I'd pull out records and I'd listen to the music of Thelonious Monk. I'd listen to the saxophone playing of Sean Coltrane and Sonny Rollins. I'd listen to the pianist, piano work of Bud Powell and Bill Evans. I listened to the drumming of Jard Blakey and Max Roach. And my whole world changed when I got introduced to jazz and really dug into it. So it became really special to me. It became so special for me that by the time I was 20, I decided to pick up an instrument myself. I had my father buy me a saxophone and I got saxophone lessons for three years. And I really enjoyed the music and somehow love being such a major fan of jazz informed my work when I became a young editor in my 20s in New York City. So that was a, a groundbreaking, exhilarating turning point in my life. The Treat from director Sam Pollard, Jazz. Pulitzer Prize winner Hua Xu further defining his aesthetic with his treat on the majestic jazz icon Pharoah Sanders, which can be found on the treasure trove of other treats at the archive, kcrw.com slash the treat. And God forgive that cliche. Expansions of aesthetic and definitions of sensibility through moments that were so compelling they changed the lives of artists and fields from film to fashion, music to the written word. Whatever you can imagine, they surpass in describing the moments of inspiration we call the treat. And we call this the treatment. Rebecca Mooney produces and edits, and Katie Gilchrist mixes the show. On help, we at Laura Kondorajan. To better days, I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. Mm-hmm.